Well, good morning. Um, it is great to be with you. My name is Campbell Bortle. If you do not know me, I'm a pastoral assistant here at Summit Woods. Um, and this year, or really every year, we make our way through various sermon series. And maybe you have noticed that, that there is somewhat of a pattern and a structure to this. We typically have at least four sermon series that are running throughout the year. One is walking through a book of the Old Testament. We typically do that during our summers. We've been in the book of Exodus. Um, we also walk through a New Testament book during the school year. And we've been in First and Second Thessalonians recently. A third series series is usually at the beginning of the year referencing the church in some capacity as we look at something like preaching or elders or what it means to live as a gospel-centered church as we saw recently at the beginning of the year. And then there's this sneaky fourth series that gets to you where the elders and staff have come together to talk about some topic that the elders have seen fit to be useful in this particular occasion and moment in the life of our church. Um, and this year, um, this summer, it begins to show up in a few sermons in a row of one, this is a part. And we are learning how we can live in light of a majestic view of who God is. And we're getting lessons in how we can learn to use theology, the theology that we are learning. How can we make this practical? How do we not just let scripture go into our heads, into our minds as raw data, but begin to apply it, to live in light of it, that it would impact our hearts and lives the way God intends it to, to see it to its end. And so far we have seen how to live in light of God's knowledge, in light of God's love, and in light of God's grace. And I personally think this is really fantastic. This is awesome because so often we can get lost in the sauce, so to speak, where we're diving deep into theology, wanting to learn more and more. It, it fills our minds, but how do we live in light of it? And when it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, if these words are true, which say that all scripture is inspired by God, all of it, and all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. If that is true, then God intentionally left every single word that is in the Bible there for you and for me. And every word is useful in informing us how we should live, which means we don't get to choose which passages we think we want to apply or they are, we think are applicable to us. Um, they all are. That's how God made his word for us. And these verses tell us in, in this passage to, written to Timothy that every good work is what these things are equipping us for. That there could not be any work that you possibly would not be able to be equipped by that is in God's word, according to his word. If we, the result of applying this would mean we were equipped for every good work that is there. And, and more than this, James, in, in, his, in his book, we, we see James say in chapter one, verses 22 through 25, that we are to prove ourselves doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. So we, we see that we are to live in light of God's word. And that's what this series is seeking to do, to point us to unpack some of these more somewhat complex truths or things that we might seek, might not seek application out of, attributes of who God is, things that God does. And we are called to be not just good listeners of good sermons, reader of good books, or having an awareness of truth. Those things are an incomplete end. 
We need to see that we are called as believers to be doers of the word as well. And doers does not just mean some physical action that you have in relationship with another person. It could mean we need to change the way we think about our beliefs because as we believe something, it will then impact our actions. It may be a wrong motivation that needs to be corrected. It may take us a little more work than just highlighting the commands and calling it a day and saying those things that are in the Bible, that is enough. Just the ones that I highlighted in green, those few words, that's all I have to do. But we, we see that all of this is profitable for us. So, so how can we use some of these things? This morning we're gonna be looking at another aspect of God, which is his wisdom. How do we live in light of the wisdom of God in particular? And in order to grasp the weightiness of this, we, we should consider a question together. What is at stake if we do not live in light of God's wisdom? What would happen if a non-believer, someone who does not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, if you do not have a relationship with God by faith alone, in Christ alone, what happens if you, as a non-believer in this room, neglected the wisdom of God altogether, or in part, and what would happen if the members of this church, the believers in this room, who have saving and faith in Christ, if they were to just neglect a small piece of this, or you were to have an inaccurate view of God's wisdom so that it was tainted? As I was contemplating and meditating on this passage and God's wisdom in general, and these questions were coming through my mind in my study, I was seeing that there are many ways that this just can infiltrate our lives. I was thinking through all the wisdom that has been passed down to me as well and the ways that it has changed and shaped who I am. I, I once was a younger man, um, as you can imagine, and, and my dad, my father, um, sought to see that I would grow in wisdom. And as a part of his discipleship and training of me, um, he desired to have a point in time where I would recognize the transition from boyhood to manhood. And so in that process, he had several men come together from my life. These were coaches, these were family members, these were leaders and mentors that were around me. And he said, I want to gather them together to have a definitive moment in time where you recognize what biblical masculinity is and you transition from living like a boy to living like a man. You have a moment in time where you can say, I became a man. And so he brought these men together and one of the things that he had them do was to all write a letter of wisdom to that end. To say, if you're going to live as a biblical man, this is something that I believe you need to know. And they wrote these letters of wisdom and they read them to me together as a part of this ceremony. And looking back on that, it was fun as a part of this study getting to read through those letters again and see the wisdom that they passed on. And something really stood out to me. Because there's many cultures that do this thing of a boy becoming a man, whether it be going and spending a night in the wilderness or, or getting your first hunt successfully alone or whatever it may be and returning as a man. Even the Jewish culture has the bar mitzvah according to the tradition of this transition. These letters, as they were brought together, it was really fascinating because there's only one man who is in that room that day who did not proclaim to be a follower of Christ. I do not know the hearts of men, so I cannot say definitively that all of the rest were. There was at least one man who denied Christ as his Lord and Savior. And what was fascinating to me 
is the wisdom that he brought in comparison to the others. You see, these men who were men of God, they were referencing the scriptures. They were talking about the armor of God, the good shepherd, what it means to be a fisher of men, and so on and so forth. And then this unbelieving man gets up, and the culmination of his idea of what you must essentially know for wisdom to be passed on, boiled down to, and every man brought a gift as a symbol, and his was this, a four-leaf clover for good luck. And I find it fascinating. He talked about some symbolism in relation to that clover, but the culmination of all of the wisdom of what it could mean to be a man boiled down to good luck. Apart from the wisdom of God, this is what we're left with culturally as wisdom. This is your best shot at being wise. It's just getting lucky. It's your hope for applying truth accurately with acute discernment unto the best outcome is at least to a significant degree related to luck if you were to abide by wisdom of the world. And while that sounds like a rough way to live, I would actually go a step further and say that's a really optimistic take on worldly wisdom. Because I think the scriptures say something much more serious. The wisdom of the world, that's all there is apart from the wisdom of God. So even a false perception of God's wisdom would be the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is folly, it is vain, it leads to ruin. Listen to 1 Corinthians three eighteen through 21. It says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So let no one boast in men. Or James 3, 14 through 15. But you, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This is wisdom. This wisdom is not that which comes from above, but it is earthly natural and demonic you see the wisdom of the world leads to ruin and that's all we're left with when we just totally neglect the wisdom of God and disregard who he is and how he relates to us and how that means we should live in light of who he is you see if you get the wisdom of God wrong you don't just get wisdom wrong which leads to ruin, but you also begin to place a worldly view of wisdom upon the shoulders of the God that you claim to know. You could take what you think he should be as truth instead of who he really is, and that could have some dire consequences. You could make him human, more like you in the wisdom of men. But as we're about to unpack together, when you get to just taste the real thing, just a nibble of it, or to borrow from the psalmist with my own spin, if you taste and see that the Lord is wise, it will electrify your worship. It will turn a pathetic view of God upside down and radically change how you see everything. It will change how you sing. It will change how you talk. It will change how you relate to others. So I think what Paul is seeing and saying in this passage for us today 
If he had to summarize it, if I had to summarize his words, I think it would be this. Praise be to God because of his infinite riches, wisdom, and knowledge. They are clearly evident in the gospel. And I hope today just to give you that nibble, a morsel, because that's all I can do to unpack up here in my time of God's wisdom. What does it mean to live in light of that? And I pray that it will invigorate your worship anew. So in today's text, I see at least three responses to the infinite wisdom of God that should embody our worship. I see three responses specifically to the infinite wisdom of God that should embody our worship in Romans eleven thirty three through 36. And before I dive into those points specifically, I wanna briefly walk through my understanding of the structure of this passage because I know myself, all right? And if I start jumping in and unpacking all of these things and going down all of these implications as we're seeking to do to apply this, I think I'm gonna spread myself too thin to give you clarity in the structure as it's spread out throughout. So I'm gonna give it to you short and sweet and then we'll see that explained further as we go. So we have three verses, but really if you break it down, I, I see five sections here. Let me show you these. Verse 33, and this is an outburst of doxology of an indescribable depth, a depth that is seen in two things, the riches of God and the wisdom and knowledge of God collectively. And at the end of verse 33, it starts the second section, which functions like a therefore. If it was true that God had great depth, so great a depth, that you would burst out into doxology over his riches, wisdom, and knowledge, then we would see what follows at the end of verse 33 in his ways and his judgments being unsearchable and unfathomable. And if God has indescribable depths in these things, then those things would be true. That is a therefore. And then in this third section, verses 34 through 35, we see that God's indescribable depth in these ways, previously listed, is evidenced in his otherness. Meaning, we are not like him. We are so different as, as created beings in comparison to this creator, infinite God. And so three questions set us up for further explanation of that main proposition of worship. And each question is actually in reverse order unpacking the three things, riches, wisdom, and knowledge that he already mentioned. So question one is about the mind, knowledge. Question two is about his counsel, wisdom. And question three is about what repayment could possibly look like to a God like this, his riches. And then the fourth section in verse 36a, it further elaborates on the third. It gives you more clarity of the third point. And it's, it's adding more to those questions through three prepositional phrases, from him, through him, and to him. So God is the source of all, he is the means of all, and he is the end of all. And if that's all true, then of course you could ask these questions and say, what are we in comparison to this God? And then the fifth section ends at the end of verse 36 in bursting out anew into a worshipful expression, ascribing glory to God. So then you say, Campbell, why do you have three points if there's five sections? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. It's because there's different levels, which we'll see. So as was mentioned, some of those points are clarifying the greater points that are there. They, they are descriptive of what follows. 
So just like the first point of those five, the second is the therefore of it. It's giving you a description of it. And those prepositional phrases, from him, through him, and to him, are explaining the means of some of that question. Why would we answer the questions in any different way? So we end up with three things. So the first of these three things, the first response to the infinite wisdom of God that you should embody in your worship and I should embody in my worship is trust in God. Trust in God. I see this in verse 33 as a whole. It starts off by saying, oh, the depth. Paul, as we jump into his letter to the Romans, we find ourselves in chapter 11. And he has been on this journey unpacking the gospel in various ways and facets, trying to set up what will follow in chapter 12 and following. You see, we're at the hinge point of this book in a major way. He's been building, climbing this mountain, describing the beauties and glories of the gospel. And then he hits the peak and he looks out over the summit and says, oh, the depth. And he is in awe of what he has found at the top. You see, we see that the first of these things is the unfathomable riches And it seems clear to me that the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge is what he's referring to as a part of the gospel's impact on bringing unity of Gentiles and Jewish people together because that's what the whole book has been about thus far. Let me show you some of that context to to prove that to you. In Romans 1.16 it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek unifying language. Romans 3, as we jump into verse 23, it says, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Again, comprehensive language, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And then jumping down to verse 29, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. Bringing unity to these through the gospel, through our condition of sin as he begins building to unpack how God defeats that. Paying the punishment for our sin. Romans 10 talks about that there is no distinction between Jew or Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches. An important word for us in our text today. For all who call on him. And then Romans 12 will talk about that we are members of one body. Romans 15 will say that now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. All all of this has been unifying language saying there's division among you guys between the Jews and the Gentiles because you're, you're seeing not how the gospel works out. And let me show you what the gospel is doing. It's brought you together. You are all sinners. You all need him. And even the verse that precedes our passage bends this direction. In verse, chapter eleven thirty two, 32, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Here again, all of this unity language. 
The second proof for this idea of what the, the riches are explaining as the depth of the gospel and what it has done, the riches in a spiritual sense that God has, all that he has contained in the richness and the beauty of what he has accomplished in the gospel, the spiritual materials he used to accomplish this. I see in Ephesians chapter three, if you'd like, you could, you could turn there with me. In Ephesians 3, we see a lot of similarities and, and things that we can compare to the passage we're in in Romans 11. This is the only other passage where Paul talks about riches in an absolute sense, as though it was a thing in and of itself. Not just as a description like a rich blessing, but as riches, as a thing that is absolute in and of itself. And he describes these undescribable, indescribable riches in reference to preaching the mystery of Christ that unites Gentiles and Israelites. And this passage in Ephesians 3, in verse 8, we're going to read this word unfathomable. And that word is hard to say in one sense, but Romans 11.33 is the only other verse that includes that word in the whole New Testament. So we're connected again to Romans 11. So, so let's read this. I'll read this for you. Ephesians 3, 6 through 8. Have your eyes on the page for this. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Again, unifying language between Gentiles and Jews through Christ in the gospel. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Mystery, the mystery, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. All right, so we see in this, again, this language of the mystery of the gospel that, that he came to proclaim that unites these people. What I see in this is Paul's been climbing this mountain saying, look at this thing that unites you guys. Do you see the power of the gospel? Do you see that it has brought Jews and Gentiles together into one family? Do you see what has been done? He, he's, he's made a way to save each and every one of us. And he gets there and he says, the richness that God must have in all that he has to accomplish such a task, oh, the depth that there must be. It's, it's indescribable, this depth. He goes on further to explain the depth of something else, which is the wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, as we learn in the scriptures, and as we've been talking about already, is divine in origin. Proverbs 8, which talks about wisdom a whole lot, says six times that wisdom existed prior to the creation of the world. Wisdom is involved in the crea creative activity of God. This is, is in who God is. Before there was anything else, there was wisdom in God. And wisdom is also seen from coming from above in James 3. Every culture seems to get this distinction, that there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge, and they've been grouped together, I think, because of the overlap that exists there. They are related, which we'll see in a minute. And not that long ago, we, we heard a sermon about living in light of God's knowledge, so I, I don't want to tarry here too long today. However, I found this definition of God's knowledge really helpful. 
And it will set up where we head in our discussion about wisdom. This is from a systematic theology that I was reading this week. It says, The knowledge of God may be defined as the perfection of God, whereby he, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself, and that the perfection of God, whereby he, in an entirely unique manner, knows himself and all things possible and actual in one eternal and most simple act. He knows everything about who he is and everything else that there ever could be at one moment in time, collectively. And you're thinking, that was kind of wordy and, and there was some jargon there. Can you, can you help me catch me up to speed? All right, so, so God's knowledge is not increased when he looks outside of himself. When he looks inside of himself, it is not increased either because he contains all that there was in wisdom before there was anything else that existed. It's completely and perfectly contained there. This is really distinct from our finite understanding of wisdom. When we have to learn things, God doesn't learn anything. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. He, he knows it all. God's knowledge exists prior to the existence of time, space, and matter. God is self-existing and his knowledge was there completely with him prior to the creation of the universe. He knows everything, the heart of every man and woman, when you sit and when you rise. He knows history in totality. And if his knowledge is that deep, that means a whole lot for us. I mean, it has tons of implications. He knows every sin of yours and still hasn't zapped you dead. And if that isn't viewed as mercy by you, then you need to stay tuned for next week when we talk about the holiness of God and what it means to live in light of that because I don't think you've grasped the difference between you and God and who he is as perfect. You see, if, if he is all-knowing, then why would we fear anything that is unknown to us, particularly if he has revealed that he has all power and control over it. If he is all-knowing, then he understands what I'm facing each day. He knows my sufferings and my trials, and he is a compassionate God who loves me. And he's going to bring me to that exact place with his precise care for a reason. It also means that God is personal. He isn't some distant, unknowable deity that we have some ethereal idea about. No, this God is capable of having an intimate and deep relationship with everyone in this room individually, knowing everything about everything that's going on in your life at this moment, in all of your past, and all of your future. This God is capable of having an intimate and deep relationship with every person that ever existed. It's, it goes far beyond this room. When I worked at Next Step Ministries for a summer, there was a man who asked me this question. He said, how do you believe in a personal God if when you pray to him, you don't hear him answer? You can speak, you don't hear him respond. You, you can go want a hug from him and he says he loves you, but you can't touch him. How could he actually be personal? And I wish I had a more developed answer at the time than I do now. And I know more now than I did of then. But I said, of course he's personal. He, he's the most personal God that could ever exist. Compared to any other religion, he's more personal than any other God you could ever fabricate. You see, my, my God actually became human 
He, he wasn't just God out there knowing everything about me, but he took on human flesh. He lived a life as I am living. And he lived it perfectly, knowing every temptation and every trial that I could face. And not just in some creator of the universe way, but in a real human form way. He walked these paths. He suffered too, more than I will ever comprehend. He was tempted in every way and without sin. My God is so personal that he lived like us so that he could restore a relationship for eternity with us. If you're tempted to believe that this God is distant from you, you'd need to not look much further than his knowledge of you. He knows everything about you. So the person in this room who's discouraged with where you're at in your walk with God, who's losing a battle with sin, God knows. He knows those temptations and he did not sin so that he could offer you life and obedience. To the person in this room who feels alone in your singleness and abandoned by your family, who's walked down a difficult path and you don't know if others are ever going to understand you, to the missionary in this room who will be raised up one day on the field or to the missionaries who may listen to this sermon someday and think, no one really knows about the work that I'm doing. God intimately knows every detail and he is for you. He is for you in Christ. Can I do something now? I, I wanna run a thought, a thought experiment as we put all these pieces together, okay? If God was only omniscient, if he just knew everything, that would still mean something, but it's far scarier than if he was also wise. If God just knew everything, but he was not wise, he's only knowledgeable, and since this is a sermon on wisdom, we need to combine these together. If, if that was true, then he would know about your suffering, but he would have not the faintest direction of what the best channel of action is to do something about that. He couldn't offer you the best help or counsel. He, he's not wise. He wouldn't know what to do. He would know about evil, but how to wisely handle it would be a complete toss-up if that would actually come about. I mean, really think about it. What would the world be like if God was not wise? Chaos. Even if God was not perfectly wise, the plan of God could not be trusted as best. There would be loose strings that would devolve into something less than good. Directionless, no plan, no goal, no aim. Because there would be no way to know if they were best. His words would be untrustworthy. Not because they wouldn't be true things, but because they might not be the best things for you. He would take away things that we needed to grow because he would be good and he would be looking in and know about a problem but not know that it's doing something to help you in his wisdom. He, in his goodness, would desire to stop evil and always remove anything that he thought was wrong. And in his limited wisdom, he would think it was best to do that and it would hurt you. He would give us gifts that we weren't able to handle. He, he would lead us into deeper indulgences of our flesh without knowing and therefore he would promote idolatry within our hearts if God was not wise. That's scary. And yet I think we can see how that's actually connected to knowledge. I'm using the word know a lot here. 
know what's best? How could God know what's best if he was not all-knowing? And knowing what's best implies that he is wise in utilizing that information. So I think these words have been tangled together because of this. The world would be an absolute mess if God was not wise and at work in the world with his wisdom. And that's why I think the end of verse 33 includes this line about his judgments and ways because it's about how he acts, his activity, the ways he's working, the way he moves. This word for judgment is typically used in a negative sense of executing justice upon someone who has been disobedient. It doesn't always mean that. And I think when it's put in parallel with his ways, we see this holistic picture that's there. That God is yet doing something good. So it's likely doubling down to place emphasis on the broad sense of God's actions, his methods, his plan as we see it unfold. And even as we don't see it unfold, they are unsearchable. They are unfathomable. So what? This is the place where we have to ask, so what? How do we actually apply this thing of wisdom in God? So what if God is so deep and so wise and knowledgeable and full of the riches of spiritual depth, not to mention the riches that exist beyond that and all that he owns because he created everything. So what do we do with this? Response number one, trust in God. I think that's where we're being led. You see, fear and anxiety melt away when you're brought to your knees in awe of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. When you see that your good shepherd, your merciful heavenly father who has all of the means of wealth, both physical and spiritual, in his grip and knows everything about everyone at all times, past, present, and future simultaneously and has the power to work in the midst of those situations, to always deal with you and the rest of humanity at any moment, perfectly, in the wisest of ways, you literally have no reason to doubt anything that God is doing. Think, think of this logic. There's a book that comes highly recommended around Summit Woods called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. We've been going through it in our senior luncheons and there's essentially this progression. He's showing that if God was good and loving and he is all powerful, if that is also true and he is wise in all he does, then the only right response that could possibly be is that you trust him. Because if he loves you, knows how to do everything, has the power to do something about it, and is gonna be wisest in doing that, then nothing could be not the best option for you. Individually and collectively, as nations and countries, as cities, as people, as churches. If God is powerful and knows all, but he's not wise, then he's dangerous. But wisdom is an aspect of his goodness that makes him worthy of trust. So we should turn to him quickly with our trust. So for the ones who are using your lack of understanding of how God works in the world, I I want to address this specifically because I think it's important. If you are thinking, how is God omniscient and powerful and how does that impact how we live as human beings making decisions How does the divine mathematics of that equation work out? I mean, that's complicated stuff. I think we need to learn from Paul here a bit. After unpacking the intricacies of how God saved his people with knowledge and riches and wisdom abounding beyond his comprehension, he fell down in worship. That was his response to, to just getting a glimpse into the gospel of how God's working 
Without a full understanding, Paul is still human just as you and I are. And he falls to his knees in worship. No doubt. Not using a lack of finite human understanding in comparison to an infinite God. That is an excuse. But explaining all that he could and and then submitting your life to him as an offering to God is what Paul chose to do. Trusting God is a belief in who God says he is. Trusting God is knowing that God's ways are best even when we don't understand them because they must be wisest because he's God. That's who he is. And and I, I want you to think through it and try to get your head around theological truths. I'm not just trying to discourage you from that. But I do think that there's a point where we use our lack of understanding as an excuse from not worshiping God. And that's what we're at risk of in this. I mean, do you believe God is who he says he is in his word? Do you really believe he's wise? Then whatever he allows, whatever he says, whatever he decides to do about salvation is best. If he allows suffering or success, if he walks you through valleys or victories, if he brings pain or pleasure, it all must be best in the way he works out the divine mathematics which we will not understand in our human finite brains. For you or anyone else, we need not be jealous of others for what they have and we don't. We need not be worried about what we do not have, anxious, fearful about our condition that may lie ahead of us, No, God is wise and oh, the depth of his wisdom. Would we worship him for that? By trusting in him. Briefly, and I know where I'm at with my time here. I'm gonna hit one last implication on this because the bulk of this comes in this front part. If God is wise and we should respond in trust to him, that also means that we should seek to live wisely, okay? We we should respond by actually desiring to grow in wisdom. If our God is actually wise, then we would do well to live in light of that wisdom by seeking to be wise ourselves. And in essence, seeking wisdom, as Proverbs tells us in several places, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, there's communicable communicable attributes of God and incommunicable ones, another couple big words. All right? One of those means that we can relate to God in some degree or form based on that attribute. The other means it's something that only God has that we could never be. There is a degree to which we can become wise too, not in the infinite sense that God is, but we can grow in wisdom. And if we're aiming at Christ's likeness, Jesus, who is called in 1 Corinthians by Paul the wisdom of God, if we're aiming to be like him, then it would necessitate growing in wisdom. And desiring to learn what it means to be wise and and walking in wise ways. And if God is wise, then knowing him would lead us to that wisdom. And obeying his commands would be wise. And if God is wise, then disobedience is not just contrary to God, but it's also harmful to you and unwise. I I mean, think about that. When we change a definition that God has made, Watch the things go wrong. When you say, ah, this thing of a man and a woman, they can be flexible. They're they're not clearly in roles. They're not identities that God has given to his people. Think about the torment that it's putting people through 
the questions, the confusion, not knowing how to answer these questions, getting surgeries to your body that hurt you, that are like shotgun wounds to yourself. I mean, this is what the world is saying is wise, changing the definition that God has given. But when you abide by those things, the ways it goes so well. When you utilize the truths that he has, it just invigorates your soul and, and you see the fruit of that comes to blessing, those general principles that, that we see in Proverbs as we live out wisdom. Knowing God and communing with him deeply, abiding with him, as John would say, will lead us to a growing awareness of wisdom. John Owen would talk about in his book, Communion with God, that the depths of true wisdom, the sum of all true wisdom and knowledge can be found in three heads. Knowing God, the knowledge of God, knowing ourselves in relationship to who that God is, we are creaturely and sinful and have need, and then the skill of walking in communion with that God, a relationship, abiding. This is where wisdom comes from. It is from above in our God. So if God is infinite in his character and unchanging, then if we can find but one example of his wisdom, if God doesn't change and you know one way that he's been wise, then he's wise in every way. That's how being unchangeable works. Then every act of God must be wise and trustworthy. Can you find but one example in your life of how God has dealt wisely with you? Paul will say that the gospel has been this abundantly, oh, the depths of the riches. We should move on, though, to the second response, I guess. So, okay, let's, let's go there. The, there is another response to the infinite wisdom of God that should embody our worship, and that is to humble yourself. I get this from verses 34 through 36a. So one of those points and one of the subpoints kind of combined. Now notice that there are several questions here, three of them, and they're asking who, as if to see which one of you could raise your hand to this. Which one from our generation could go to battle head to head with God on any of these fronts? And what it's showing is there's such a divide in our creatureliness and his godness, his otherness from us that we could not help but be fueled to worship the point that he's making as a whole. It's just going to build and stoke the coals of our affections for that love for God, for our worship of him. And that's what Paul's doing here. So let's look at these three questions the first in 34a, who has known the mind of the Lord? This is a quote that's taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Isaiah 40, 13. And what you, you should know about quotes in the Bible, if a New Testament author is using the Old Testament or the Old Testament's using the Old Testament, it's very likely it's just a sample platter saying the main course is over there. Why don't you go turn and, and see and the way preaching, unfortunately, works is you get only a limited time and you have to stick in your text. And, but let's turn quickly and, and see a little bit of this in context because I think it's helpful. So Isaiah 40 is where we will go. And in Isaiah 40, we're gonna see some of the context that surrounds this quote in verse 13. So I'm gonna start in verse 12 and I, I just wanna see if it sounds familiar to you, if it might line up with our passage. It starts this way. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span and calculated the dust of the earth by a measure and weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor informed him, With whom did he consult and whom gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Man, talk about getting a dose of humility. I mean, and we think that we just have some audacity to come to God and say, I know better. My, my way. I know something that you don't, God. That's not going to go well. See, Isaiah 40 is this pivot in the book. It's a significant transition where it's been moving from talking about judgment to this hope. And it begins this chapter by talking about comfort to these people for this future one who will be coming. It's leading and building towards this in the book of Isaiah, the suffering servant who will save people from their sin. It's rooted in the gospel yet again and says, let me humble you with the gospel yet again. And again, we're being drawn back into this gospel and loaded up with this humility and a scripture that just puts you in its place with a list of questions like Paul is doing in ours. So if you head back to Romans 11 now, You might notice that only a few verses away in chapter 12, we're going to see that we need to renew our own minds. See, God doesn't do that. It says, who can know the mind of God? It is set, it is established, but we have to renew our minds. We're going to see that we are different because we have messed up. We're talking about a God who has complete knowledge, the existence who is prior to anything that we know. A God of not just aware of the fact that I drank coffee this morning, but he's aware of how many beans and how many ounces and what tree it came from and the farmers that it took to get there and the chemical things it's doing in my brain to stimulate me, riding off the fumes of VBS as well to be here with you today. <laughs> I mean, Fernando is just pumped about this, right? No, no, God knows all of that. He knows every detail and how every decision will impact every other decision at a macro global scale and at a microscopic scale in one-to-one relationships. For every person at every moment constantly. Not just for this moment, but for all of history. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. That is worthy of worship in and of itself. And yet the craziest part of all of this is that it was all planned. This God chose to do this not a moment is out of his reach or out of his control and in the midst of all the chaos that we would make by undoing his creative acts of turning formless and void into something beautiful that was good the structure we brought sin into the world and made this big old mess out of all of it destroying our relationship with God running from him rebelling against him aimless devoid of any grasp of actual truth foolish 
We who thought we were wise were living as fools, hell-bound yet uncaring and devouring sin like it was candy, sinning all the more. And God still found it in his mercy and grace to apply his infinite wisdom to revive dead, helpless hearts of stone and bring them back to life. In his wisdom, he found a way to do that. We could not know how to do that. That is a God thing. That is wisdom that we cannot comprehend. Who can know the mind of God? That is the question that is before us. And again, I see this linking back in reverse order like we mentioned as we're talking about knowledge. So the next one must be then wisdom, which is 34b. None could counsel him. This word counselor is a word that's only used here in the Greek New Testament. But in the Septuagint, as it relates to the Old Testament, there's a handful of times that it uses this word to describe advisors or leaders, like the advisors of Pharaoh, counselors to him. Isaiah 19.11 uses it that way. It says, or who has first given to him that he might be repaid back. That's what we'll see next. But this counsel, this wisdom that God has It says, you think you can stand a chance going head to head with him? Who could compare to that infinite wisdom of the mercy of God, how he lavished it on sinners through the death of his son? You could not come up with that. And you think you're going to tell him what you think is a better decision? And then he goes to this, this statement about who can repay this God. This is also a quote from the Old Testament Citing another explosion of humbling questions. And if you had to think what other one could there be, you probably would go to Job, which is where he goes. Job 41.11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, says the Lord. This is the end of a whirlwind of God speaking to Job that starts way back in chapter 38. Okay, talk about some questions coming at you. Let me just read some portions of this to give you some of this. Job 38, one through seven starts by saying, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words with knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who sets its measurements since you know or who stretched out the line on it. On, on what were the bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Jumping further ahead in the book, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that abundance of water will cover you? Can you stretch forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, where are they? Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the innermost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? Further jumping ahead, it is by your understanding that the hawk soars, isn't it? Stretching his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up or makes his nest on high? Chapter 40, now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you to instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Verse in chapter 41 then, who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? That is our verse. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
I mean, talk about being humbled yet again. And we, again, we, we just think, man, God, the way you're doing this, I don't know. Like, I really feel like this way has to be better. And so I'm gonna plead with you to do this thing that satisfies me. Instead of saying, God, I'm gonna submit to your will that it would be done. What, what is it that you would want? Because you know everything. We have the audacity to think that our judgments are better. Pride is when we think we know better than God. It's elevating yourself to the point of God and saying that we are on equal footing or worse, that you are higher than God and that you are right. And I will just say this did not go well for Job in the moment, so maybe we should take some notes and learn from him. One last note here. It says that he might be paid back. This word is also used throughout the New Testament in other places, not just to describe a physical transaction of goods, but a, a, another spiritual type of transaction or some sort of non-physical action, like God repaying with vengeance or judgments or in the resurrection, as we see in Luke 14 and Romans 12 and 2 Thessalonians 1.6. These places were seen as used in other ways, which again, I think solidifies some of this idea that this is a spiritual riches as well. Further proof for these above rhetorical questions comes out in what follows in the first part of verse 36. Three prepositions. And I think several commentators have said it far better than I could. So I'm going to read them. One summed it up this way. All comes from him. All lives by him. All ends in him. And John Stott will say of this. If we ask, where did all things come from in the beginning? and still come from today, the answer must be from God. If we ask how all things came into being and remain in being, our answer has to be through God. If we ask why everything came into being and where everything is going, our answer must be for and to God. Each of these prepositions indicate that God is the creator, sustainer, and heir of everything, its source, its means, and its goal. This is who God is. And so the application must be that we be humbled in this. He is worthy of our prayers because of this. Prayer is an act of submission to him saying, I need to come to you knowing that your ways are better. Are we humbled to prayer? Or do we pray out of our pride? We should also savor his word as the rich wisdom that it is. If he is wise, then all of his words are wise. He's chosen specific things to include for us and to remove things that we do not need. So lastly, let's look quickly at this third response. This third response is that we would glorify God. And I get that in the, the last part of verse 36, 36b. It says, to him. This I, I see as God in totality. Uh, not a singled out person of the Trinity, but God seen in every work of every facet of salvation according to his riches and wisdom and knowledge. And it says to him be the glory, not just some of it or part of it, but the totality of all glory should supremely be given to God. To glorify God means to honor him with all of our praise, adoration, and worship. And as the scriptures display, our worship is glorifying to God. 
And it's not just limited to singing, by the way, as some would think. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. So there are ways we live our lives that are submitting to God's authority, trusting him, that are worship. And then it says, forever, amen, without end, an echo through the ages of eternity, from one generation singing to another, we standing on the shoulders of saints singing songs that they wrote in the past, echoing forever, glory be to God. Should we not be overwhelmed with praise for our God? Should we not sing and worship God in a way that the world would look in and say, man, I know they really believe those truths by the way they sing, by the way they live their lives, by the steps that they take. Should we not be changed and be different? Man, if we really believed these things, what would be different in your life? Our worship would be reverent for his greatness. But may it not be small. I think that's Paul just sitting here saying, oh, the depths of the riches. I'm not thinking he's just writing that like bland toast. Oh, the depth of the riches. I I think he's amped, like electrified all the way up and down his spine. Are you kidding me? The depths of the riches of God? The gospel that saved all of us, bringing us together? Have you grasped it? Have you seen? I have to proclaim it to the mountains. Take it to the ends of the earth. You must know. Do you know who my father is? What he has done? Do you know my Jesus? This is what he's saying. This is how he fuels his worship. And it is with the gospel. And I just think, I mean, we can look around the room and I'm not judging hearts, right? Don't elbow anyone. But but there could be times where it's like, I I know for myself, I can walk in, I could be even playing piano and practicing all week these songs and the truths have not settled into my soul in a way that I'm really empowered and just fueled by belief in those things to proclaim adoration and glory to God. I mean, we could just be looking like, oh, the depths of the riches when we see each other, you know, when we're in this room. As non-believers come in, is that what we want to proclaim to them? And I, I know that there's different things going on in everyone's life. You know, there could be tragedy that you walked in from. There could be difficulties with kids. You didn't sleep at night. You just came off a night shift. I, I get that. But evaluate the constant pattern of your heart and where you are at before him. I mean, for crying out loud, we could be singing one of those VBS songs, rejoice, come and lift your hands and raise your voice. He's worthy of all praise, rejoice. And, and you could just be mumbling it in your seat person borderline frowning. I think Paul would be saying, how can you say those kinds of words and not be fueled to praise your God? Do you know my Jesus? Have you met my heavenly father? I know I can catch myself in these places. I'm not thinking Paul was was writing it those ways. I think he was saturated in a passion when he's writing on this page here. See, this is what the wisdom of God can do when it is understood rightly. This is what living in light of our God should find its terminus in. If you are a believer, you and I are gonna be worshiping for eternity fueled by the same gospel. So let's start now. If you're not a believer, man, the first step of accepting and 
abiding by and believing in this wisdom is seeing the beauty of that wisdom on display in the gospel. That is what the gospel is. That is wisdom of God. Will you not just doubt and make excuses, but will today you believe in the wisdom of God? In light of God's wisdom, we should worship him. And, and if we are to respond rightly to the infinite wisdom of God in, in such a way that it would embody our worship, I think these three things would come out. That we would trust God, that we would humble ourselves and glorify our God together. Let me pray. O oh, wise heavenly Father, we come before you so amazed at the riches of your wisdom. Lord, you have done far more than, than we could ever comprehend. It is unfathomable. You know all things. Forgive us when we think that we know better. Forgive us when we seek to go our own way in disobedience. Forgive us when we don't repent quickly because we have not submitted to your wise counsel, knowing rightly that it will harm us in the long run. Lord, would you forgive us of these sins? And Lord, would you help us to taste just a little more of your goodness that is found in your wisdom that we would see you more fully and completely and praise you and be fueled in our worship. That we would live our lives proclaiming, not my will, but your will be done. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Respond, putting our trust in our Lord. Your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth. My heart is drawn to self-exalted. Help me seek your kingdom first. As Jesus walked, so I shall walk. Held by your same unchanging love, be still my soul, lift your voice and pray, Father, not my will, but yours be done.